our passage this morning is out of Exodus 19. So, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in front of all of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? No? All right. I think I turn it on and then I walk up and I shut it off. So sorry. I'm a learning. We're a work in progress, right? Um, anyways, we're the real Christians in the house this morning. Daylight savings has nothing on you guys. See, I don't need that extra hour of sleep because I'm here for the Lord. That's right. That's us. I'm just kidding. Man. I don't know if I would be here if I wasn't preaching. Uh, I'm kidding. Relax. Um, would you just pray with me one more time? We're just going to invite God to speak to us this morning. He's uh, what we need. So let's just um, go to him in prayer before we start. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. Thank you for the moments that we get to share here together this morning. Thanks that you love us and that you're for us. And God, more than any information or facts this morning, what we need is your presence. We need you. We need to meet you this morning. We just invite you to come, Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Encourage us, convict us, do whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, with a little bit of bad news, right? Daylight savings, there's always some good news. And a lot of people love Christmas. They say that's the best time of the year. But I'm going to tell you what, this week and next week are the best weeks of the year. And if you're, if you're a basketball person, you know why. March Madness, baby. It's better than Christmas. This Thursday morning, don't hit my phone because I'm going to be busy all day. My schedule is booked. I'm going to be watching games. All day. Okay, I love love March Madness, um, and, and and that's probably that's like number one sporting event. Number two sporting event is the Super Bowl, right? Everybody loves the Super Bowl, and if there's one sporting event that you don't want to be on an airplane for, it's the Super Bowl. But my wife and I, we were flying back during the Super Bowl, so we were watching it. But shout out Southwest, shout out in-flight Wi-Fi, shout out all the abilities and technologies of 2022. We're just sitting there with the iPad up, watching the Super Bowl, and. Uh, I'm not big into the halftime show with the commercials. Like, I actually like the game. So once the halftime show came on, I'm like, let's you know, turn on our show. So we, we, we shut off the show. We shut off the Super Bowl. We turn on our show. So I'm not going to tell you what it is because I'm afraid that you're going to judge me. Um, so we're just going to say whatever it is, the show that we were watching that you won't know. Um, but we shut down our show. We turn on our show. 
And I start to notice something that's happening in the airport or in the airplane. I start to see a bunch of people's heads just start to do this. Like there are 14-year-old little girls and 65-year-old white men, and they are all bobbing their head like this. I'm like, babe, what is going on? Like I kind of take my headphone out. I'm like, hey, did, did they say something over the intercom? Or like, did they pass out a sheet of paper? Like, I have all these ideas running through my head, right? Like you're on an airplane, you get a little bit irrational. I'm like, yo, are we trying to balance the plane or something? But I'm not in our heads. Like, what is... What is going on? I'm like, I'm all about fitting in. Like, babe, should we just, let's just do it, right? Let's just start nodding our head too. But then I kind of peeked over person's shoulder. You guys ever do that when you're on the airplane? You're like, let me see what you're doing during this time of by yourself. <laughs> let me watch what you're watching. Um, don't judge me. Okay, you do it too. I know you do. But I peeked over somebody's shoulder and I see the one, the only Snoop, D-O-double-G, Snoop Dogg, who's on a house in the stadium. And I'm like, oh, I forgot Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and Eminem are doing the, the, the halftime show, right? So I'm like, they shut the show off. It's, it's ungodly anyways. Because um, you're always trying to make me watch your bad shows. Um, so we shut the show off, we turn on the halftime show, and it took me all of about three seconds, right? And my head is bobbing, right? Because when you hear Snoop Dogg or you hear Dr. Dre, your, your body, it does not know what to do except for bob its head, right? You hear the music and the rhythm in your ears, and all of a sudden something wells up inside of you, you can't help but do a little dance. But not your head, even as, as unrhythmic as I know some of you probably are, you can't help but bob your head a little, right? And in the exact same way, there is a rhythm to how we are to live and move and have our being as Jesus followers, right? We are not people who come in here just to get dance steps or to change behaviors. We are here to, to primarily and fundamentally hear a song in our ears that wells up inside of us and then launches us into the lives that we live. We're not here to get a slip of paper and say, hey, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to nod our head on this count. Okay, now go. Nod your head, right? That's not what we do. We come in here to hear and to listen to something, to feel and experience and know something. And it's this sequence, this sequence of events is how we live our life, and it's a sequence of the biblical narrative at large. And this morning, this passage is one of the clearest depictions of it in the story of Israel in the book of Exodus. I'll explain a little bit more, but it says that, right, the, the context up to this point, God's people, the Hebrew people, they've been enslaved. They've been in captivity to Egypt, and then God, through plagues and miracles and providing manna from heaven, has made a way for their freedom, right? He's provided and sustained them every step of the way, and they're sitting here waiting on what's going to happen next. God has led Moses then up to the, the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to the mountain to listen to and to hear from God, and God lays out this sequence of events. He reminds them of some things, and then he um, invites them into what he's going to do next. And the understanding of this sequence is fundamental for our understanding of the Bible at large, as well as God's work and role in our own life. And it goes like this. God's saving work, our response, and the blessing that flows from that. Or, or today, how I'm going to say it is God's grace to us, his invitation to us, and then his calling for us. God's grace and his invitation and then his calling. Alex Modier, an Old Testament scholar, who we probably know, we're not one for the dramatic, right? Like, if you're an Old Testament scholar, if it sounds exciting, it's probably really exciting, okay? But he says this, nothing must ever, ever be allowed to upset this order. Nothing messes up this order. God's saving work, our response, and the blessing that flows from that. 
the music always comes before the dance steps, if that makes sense, if you're tracking with my illustration now. And this is what the passage says, right? God to Moses, verses four through six, if you're following along, he says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So this is the rhythm, the flow of the biblical narrative. And it's also the rhythm for our lives as we follow Jesus. And to mess up the order or the sequence of events is to be completely out of step with the God of the scriptures. We hear the music and then we respond, not the other way around. Or as one author says it, that before there is any talk of obeying, what God has done for them fills their lives. That's the rhythm this morning. Grace, invitation, calling. And even this morning, as, as I'm thinking, I, I have two primary groups in my mind. One, one is a fringe people who are kind of considering what it might really look like to follow Jesus. Can I say this is, the, this is one of the most clear depictions of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Not to just enter into some behavior modification, but what it really means to see and savor and experience Jesus. But also another group in my mind is people who've been following Jesus for a really long time, that you know the dance steps, you know what to say, you know when to say it. And I just want to refresh you this morning with the music of the gospel, the music that sings of the good news and goodness of Jesus. Even this morning, as we were singing that song, um, what was the second song we sang? I forgot what it was called. Third song, maybe. I forgot it. But um, I, I remember being in college, your love never fails. I remember being in college, I had the theology of like a three-year-old, man. Like I knew nothing about God, except for I think he loves me. And that song just brought me back to the simplicity of, of hearing the music of the good news of God's love for me. So I, I just want to remind us and refresh us with the goodness and the good news of Jesus this morning. And that's where it starts, right? Grace. Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You have seen what I did. He says a mere two or three months before this, they, they'd been slaves. They, they were being beaten, whipped, forced to make bricks without straw, whatever that means. They were subject to horrendous oppression. They were seeing the slaughtering of their baby boys. But then God broke in and he set them free. See, the whole story of Exodus is the initiation of God's saving grace, the, the freedom that he performed, the salvation that he enacted. And then there is this clear evidence, right? He says, you have seen it. I'm not trying to convince you to trust me blindly and move forward. He's saying, no, you've seen this. There's clear evidence. There's some things that you can't unsee. It's why Jesus, even when he commissions his disciples in the book of Acts, one of the, one of the first identities that he gives them is, as he launches them into their purpose, he says this, right? He calls them witnesses. In Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. See, the crux, the center of Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus is not just new thoughts or ideas, but it's about being a witness, that you have seen something, that you have experienced something or tasted something, as the psalmist would say. A couple years ago, uh, Kayla and I were freshly married, uh, just got married, and so I signed up to be like provider, protector, 
like let's do it right. But I had this really bad habit, and I still do from time to time, of uh, not locking our doors. Um, so I, uh, one morning, we walked down, and our TV was gone. Okay, TV just gone. That's that's a rattling experience. But our TV gone, our Apple TV gone, and this bag of gear that Caleb just got from the Mizzou basketball team gone, all gone. Um, totally rattling experience, right? Like someone was in my house and I was asleep. Um, crazy. I had to convince Kayla like every night for the next like three weeks with my nine iron under the bed, like, babe, I've got this. If anybody comes in, just not secure, confident at all. It's like, okay, babe, why don't I sleep by the door? Um, uh, but anyways, we got all our stuff stolen. The next day, one of Kayla's teammates uh, calls her and is like, hey, Somebody, uh, I think, is this your TV? And she sends her a screenshot of somebody on Facebook Marketplace. She's like, yeah, that's our TV. So I'm like, Detective Cam, let me call the cops. I got this. So I call them like, hey, man, I got the guy. They're like, uh, sir, what's your issue? I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, uh, my, my TV was stolen. So I go through all the information. And I'm like, and I know who took my TV. I've got him on Facebook right here. And they're like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, man, we lost our TV last night with our Apple TV. And I can see the picture right here. It's our TV and our Apple TV. It says there's no remote. He's like, I'm like, I've got the remote, bro. Like, I've got it. So we've got it. And he's like, well, all right. We talk, go back and forth for a little bit. He's like, at at the very end, he finally said, well, unless you witnessed it yourself, I can't help you. I was like, I don't even know if that's true, bro. Like, I don't, you just have too many things going on. You can't handle my TV. But, but anyways, we ended up getting our stuff back. Long story. I can tell you the the rest later. It's like, we don't care, Cam. Um, But this is what God is drawing on here, right? He's saying that you are a witness. That is your primary identity that launches you into your life. It is that you are a witness, that you have seen what I've done. You have seen some things you can't unsee. It's not just an idea to you. It's not just a story to you. It's not just a list of concepts and behavior modifications. It's something that I did in you and for you. And this is how God works. He loves to prove himself strong wherever you're at, whatever you're wrestling with. And it's not just an idea. It's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1. He says, I keep asking that the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which he has called you. He's not talking about more information. He keeps asking, God, open their eyes that they might see you. Don't let this just be information for them. We need to see you, God. We need to experience you, God. That's why he's praying it again and again and again. It's the difference between knowing about him and knowing him. And what God is reminding Moses here is he's saying, you have seen what I did. It's not just a cute Instagram caption, bro. I actually did this. And he says, and you've seen what I did to Egypt and how I've carried you on wings like eagles. Don't you just love that? I don't know. I, I tried to find some stuff on eagles' wings. I'm just like, eagles are beautiful. That's all I got. But he carried us. Just think about that language for a second. How I carried you. When was the last time you were carried somewhere? Probably when you were like two or three years old. You ever think about that? That one time your parent picked you up and they put you down. They never picked you up again. That's crazy. But what does that say about how we relate to God? He carries us, and we get carried. I can't help but think about my babies, right? Like, like little seven-month-old Mav, he just, second kid, doesn't do a thing. He just sits there all the time, doesn't move, has no ambition for moving. So when he wants to go somewhere, what do I have to do? I have to pick him up and carry him and take him somewhere. But it's, 
In the same way, when he's sad, what does he want? He wants, he wants to be held. I pick him up and I carry him. Even my two-year-old, right? She's still at the same time. She sometimes, whenever she's feeling sad or scared, she'll say, Daddy, hold you. She's still figuring out how to use her knees and kind of figuring that out. We're, we're working on it. She says, Daddy, hold you. She just needs to be held. See, we are his children. We are his kids. He carries us. He holds us. There's this instinctive desire for children when they are scared or uncomfortable for their parent or, for their, parent or their guardian to hold them, to pick them up to move them from point A to point B. That's how we are wired. That's how God made us to be held, to be carried by God. There's this nearness. There's this closeness. I'm not holding them out like this. You ever seen anybody holding their baby like this? Okay, no, it's, there's, there's this nearness. There's this closeness with God holding us. And even for you and for me, how we've made it up to this point is God carrying us. And how we'll move forward as God will continue to carry us. He's reminding us, this is where you find freedom. This is where you find victory. This is how you make it through what you're going through in your life right now. You let him carry you. You let him hold you. It's actually even an invitation to get in touch with your own story. One of my, one of my mentors, he says, we get the confidence to move forward by looking backwards. Where have you been? Where has God carried you? What has God literally brought you through? Your own anxieties and insecurities and pain and suffering that you've been carried through. Don't forget that it was God who carried you. And in the same way, he's continuing to carry you, that he is carrying you. And if he's carrying you, then what should you let him carry that you're right now trying to carry? Your future? See, the uncertainty of our future is one of the things that we, we carry, like we just do. And even the Israelites, like think about them. It took them all about five seconds to start grumbling to God after he set them free. But think about their, their reality right now. Their reality, their future hangs in the balance. They're like, we, we, we know where we've been, but I have no idea what's next. I just saw the C part, like, and here I am. Like, what is going to happen now? But God is reminding them through Moses, don't, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I carried you out. I'm going to keep carrying you. I'm going to keep providing for you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep sustaining you. I am the one who carried you out, and I'm the one who continues to carry you. And that's the good news of the gospel is that God brings us out. He's the one who saves us and rescues us and sets us free. But not only that, he's the one who continues to, by his grace, sustain us and carry us. And so he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on on eagle's wings, and he says, and brought you to myself. See, the hope in all of this is that we are, brought, we are brought out of something, but we are brought to God. The hope ultimately is God, that we're brought into him. The freedom, the release from bondage, the, the release from bondage and slavery is only freedom if you are brought into God's presence. Keller has this line. He says, you can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but it's sometimes it's hard to get the Egypt out of the Israelites, right? Like a couple weeks ago, I had this big moment of inspiration. It was starting to get cold, and I'm like, babe, let's clean out the garage so we can park our cars in there so I don't have to scrape off my windshield every night, right? Every morning, right? So we did it, cleaned out the garage a little bit, parked both our cars in there for one night. The next night, then the next morning, I wake up, and our cars are outside. I'm like, oh, babe. 
We forgot to park our cars, right? We had the freedom to park in the garage. We had the freedom to not have to scrape off my windshield in the morning, but it's only free if I actually drove it into the garage, right? Because the garage is where the freedom is. It's not just a clean garage. It's that I actually go into the garage in the same way God is saying, it's only freedom if you actually come to me and brought you to myself. Freedom is only freedom if it's with God. I mean, even America itself, right, is, is, is truly, it's this social experiment founded on the pursuit of happiness and freedom. I mean, hundreds of millions, I don't know how many Americans we have. That's a lot, that's a, that's, is, that, is that correct? Hundreds of millions, is that too many? Yeah. I don't know, hundreds of millions of us are chasing down freedom. We're chasing happiness, we long for it. Money, materialism, sex, romance, religion, family and fame, they're all in pursuit of this same human craving that we long for, joy freedom. But apart from Jesus, we never get there. People spend decades searching high and low for happiness, but never land with freedom and joy. In an odd twist, America, for all of her life and liberty, is one of the most depressed nations in the world. Right? The average level, this is, this is one study, I don't know if it's the study, but one study says that the average level of anxiety from a 15-year-old to a 25-year-old, the average, just baseline, kind of middle-of-the-road anxiety, would be enough to put someone in an insane asylum in the 1950s. With all of the freedoms that we have, we're still as anxious and as depressed and as afraid as ever. We have more rights, liberties, decisions, but we are still in slavery because freedom is only free when it's with Jesus. That's why he says, I set you free and I called you to myself. Freedom in Jesus' mind is the, ability, um, is the ability to do whatever you should do, to enjoy the world as God has intended you, to live fully alive and awake with God. He saved us from something, but he also saved us for something. And that's the invitation that he says in verse five. So his, his grace, his one-way love sets us free, but then he invites us into something deeper. Verse five, he says this, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Right, he's about to give the 10 commandments. We're gonna talk about that next week a little bit, but he's about to give the 10 commandments. Right, he's about to, he's about to walk up on the hill and give us these instructions but before he does so, he sandwiches them between what he has done for them and he gives them a promise. He doesn't just say, hey, look, you're free. I did that. Now, do what I say. Now he gives them a promise, an invitation. If you obey me fully, here's what will happen. And that's invitational language from an invitational God. See, and here's where we get stuck sometimes or if not stuck, at least discouraged, because you say, Cam, okay, how, how does this God who loves me and likes me, how is he also going to tell me what I can and can't do with my body? Or how does this God who apparently sees me white as snow and loves me and has forgiven me and set me free, how is he now going to tell me what I should and should not do with my money? It feels a little bit manipulative, doesn't it? I mean, like this unconditional love that we're talking about, all of a sudden it kind of has a lot of conditions to it, and I don't really like most of them. But to interpret it that way, or even have those feelings is to, is to misrepresent how we see God in our mind. See, in order to understand God's hand, we have to understand his heart. And in order to understand what God says, we have to understand who he is at his foundational, fundamental level. We have to understand what moves him to say what he says. 
See, in Galatians 5, it's really, really interesting. Paul, Paul says this, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Meaning that the purpose, the motivation, the intent behind the freedom that Jesus purchased for us on the cross is your freedom. The intent behind God bringing the Hebrew people out from slavery was their freedom. God wants you free. More than anybody else wants you free, God wants you free. He created you. He saved you to set you free. That You might no longer have to be enslaved to your own desires, to be enslaved to the patterns of this world. It's why Paul follows up that verse and he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit then to another yoke of slavery. So even as God, as he, as he obeys or bids us to obey him, in reality what he's doing is he's inviting us to more freedom. Even the Ten Commandments themselves, and we'll talk more about that, they're all invitations to freedom, to life, to joy. So in order to understand God's hand, we have to understand his heart, and he won't have it any other way. That's the order. That's the sequence. We understand his heart, and then we, we listen to his invitation. See, God in, invites us to obedience, but it's only as far as we know his heart for us, his desire for freedom for us. So he initiates with his grace. He invites us to listen to him, to obey him, and it concludes with our calling. He draws us in, he teaches us, and then he sends us out. Verse six, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what does that mean? Well, in order to understand what that means, we have to understand the functions of priests, right? Priests, first and foremost, in, in the Old Testament, they were set apart to serve God. They were set apart for the work of the Lord. They were consecrated, made holy unto the Lord, which explains why even God's commands in the next following verses are to consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, purify yourselves, wash yourselves, be clean. Right? James 4 says this, draw near to God. We just read it. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The invitation from God isn't, isn't one of fear, but it's one of freedom and purpose. He's saying, purify your hearts. Get out all that is in there that is holding you back. It's like a backpack that you just got a bunch of stuff in there that is totally unnecessary. And you're walking around and you got back problems and it's carrying you back. All he's saying is take out what is in the backpack so that you can actually launch into your life and what you are made to do. Emptying yourself from all that holds you back from experiencing the presence of God and the purpose of God in your life. But the, so that's one function. But the primary function of the priest is to stand in the gap between God and the people. The priest's role and responsibility was to make God known to the people. They were the teachers of the law. So they would explain and instruct the people about who God was and what God said. Um, and we need to understand here the, the weight of that. Because see, at this time, like, not everybody was literate. We didn't have Bibles for everybody. So you couldn't just say, hey, bro, don't test what that guy says and go, go to the Bible. So there was this weight, this immense weight on what they were saying. It's why in the book of Hosea, God rebukes the priests. And he says this, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Nobody knows about me because you aren't doing it right. They were also the ones who brought the people's sacrifices to God. They had access to the presence of God and provided the means for others to come into his presence. And essentially what God is saying to the Hebrew people is, you will be for me to all the world what your priests are to you. 
Through you, I will make myself known to the nations. God is entrusting Israel this this vision and this identity and this purpose, saying you will be for me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's this theme in the New Testament that we, that we say we have, the people would call the priesthood of all believers, right? There's this similar language in 1 Peter. Let me read it. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's saying that as followers of Jesus, saved, redeemed, children of God who received mercy and forgiveness, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have access to God's presence. You have God's life and breath and energy all living inside of you. You are to be my priests, people who stand in the gap between God and humanity. That's our role. That's our responsibility. That's the weight that we get to carry as people who are hosts to God's presence. We are a royal priesthood. Your life matters so much more than you realize or can acknowledge. But how do we do that? How do we stand in the gap? How do we stand in the gap between God and people? Well, it's through this life flow of the priests and the rhythm, really, of the entire book of Exodus. We are drawn in to be sent out. We're drawn in to be sent out. We are people who are immersed in God's presence. It transforms us. It changes us, not just ideas, but it transforms who we are. Not just what we say, not just what we think, but who we actually are on the inside. The presence of God transforms our inner life, our inner world. Because here's the thing. In 2022, our current cultural moment, there are more words than ever before. There are more tweets, there are more blog posts, there are more ideas and concepts. It's completely overwhelming, if I'm honest. There, are, there is so much. Everyone is trying to convert us to their way of, way of thinking. But, but my grandma always said, Cam, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. I don't know what that means at all. But here's what it means. <laughs> here's what I think it means with my thoughts and my ideas. Um, kidding. Um, The proof is in what what does it actually look like? Maybe I'm actually understanding it right now. I mean, existential moment. The proof is in the pudding. Okay. Praise God. Okay. Um, The proof is in what it actually looks like. You can have great ideas. You can have great concepts. That's an awesome thing. But what does it actually look like in your life? That's why way more than your words say anything right now, it's your life that matters how you live, how you move, how you have your being. It's what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit or the effects of being in God's presence. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear, we need to stand in the gap. But There's a lot of ways that we can do that, but one of the primary ways, and actually the most overlooked ways, is in your ordinary, everyday life. To be so transformed by the presence of God that you become a person of love, that you become a person of peace, a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. To become a person who is patient and kind and gentle and faithful, not to just do patient things or say patient things, but to become someone who is naturally patient. But hear me, it's not 
this growth of willpower that we're looking for. Because that's temporary, right? Like the temptation to be like, okay, the world needs joy and positivity. Let's do it. I'm going to be so happy today. It literally lasts till like 10 a.m. Like it won't last. You can't do it. I know all of you have tried. You can't. But we need something outside of us to transform what is inside of us. Because to try to do that is just actually another form of slavery. To try to live like Jesus without the presence of Jesus. That's why in verse 9, God tells Moses, I'm going to come to you. Right? He says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and they'll put my tr- their trust in you. So the calling for us today is to be an extension of Jesus to the world. In the same way that, that our words and, and people didn't have Bibles and understanding, they had your life to look at. They look at you. You might be the only real Christian, real Jesus follower that someone knows. So they're looking at your life. We are the extension of Jesus to the world, that he is our head, and we are literally his body, his hands, his feet. But we do all of that by the power and under the authority of Jesus, who is our great high priest, who made a way for us to enter into the presence of God. See, it's all about him. We're under him. It's by his power. We're blessed by him to be a blessing to the world, we are drawn in to be with him, and then we're sent out. We hear the music. We experience the goodness of Jesus, and we just dance. We live. We flow. We have our being as we listen to him. God's grace is invitation and our calling. So I don't know if you picked up on this, but, but the flow and the rhythm and the order and the sequence events is all about him. It's all about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. And it's only as he saves us and as he teaches us and he empowers us to be all that we were made to be that we find the freedom and the joy and the purpose and the fulfillment that we long for. It's all about him. So as I close and land the plane a little bit here, I just want to ask you, what are you you looking at? What are your eyes fixed on? What has your attention this morning? Hebrews says to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who sustains. He's the one that brings it all to fruition. It's all about him. And it's only by knowing him and loving him and seeing him and experiencing Jesus that any of this makes sense. Like I know some of your lives, like your life does not make sense if Jesus isn't who he says he is. Your generosity makes no sense unless Jesus is who he says he is, your service and your sacrifice and your decisions. It doesn't make any sense. People on the outside look and they say, why are they dancing like that? And you're saying, I'm listening to some music, bro, and I can't help but do this because I know and I've tasted and I've experienced who Jesus is. And it moves us. And it's music in our ears and we can't help but live a certain way. So tonight or this morning, what we're going to do, even as we pray, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have some people in the back. Um, and I just want to invite you. If, if, if you feel like you're like, man, I'm doing all the dance steps, but I'm not tasting it. We want to pray with Paul in Ephesians 1. We want to say, we want to pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Sorry. <laughs> you might see who he is. You might experience the goodness of God. 